Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. And welcome everyone once again to the Vineyard. It is so good to be with you this morning. My name's Christian Root. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here and I am excited to share this morning. And I, I am particularly excited that we are kicking off a brand new sermon series this morning entitled simply The Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God. It is easy to forget, even for for those among us who are quite familiar with our Bibles, how often the theme of the kingdom of God appears in the teachings of Jesus and, in fact, throughout the entire New Testament. In Mark 1.15, we're told that Jesus proclaimed this message. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And in Matthew 4, 17, Matthew records, from that time on, Jesus began to preach what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, has come near. Throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus tells parables about the kingdom. He he teaches us to pray for the coming of the kingdom, and he shares that his followers have actually been given the kingdom. Kingdom of God is clearly a massive theme within the teachings of Jesus. And so, Lord willing, for the next several weeks, we will be exploring and examining different aspects of the kingdom of God. And this morning, as we kick off our series, we'll be looking together at Jesus' command to seek this kingdom first. But before we, we jump into today's text, I'd love to pray. So would you pray with me now? Jesus, we we come to you this morning and we thank you for your faithfulness. You are a faithful, faithful shepherd to us. In hardships, in joy, in delight, and and in struggles, you are ever faithful. You are ever faithful. You are king, Jesus. You are king. We love you, Jesus, and I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place this morning. I pray that you would send fire, that you would send fire, that you'd send fire in our midst. Stir us up, Holy Spirit. Move us by your truth. Put power on my words now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, church, in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus spoke at length, you might remember, about the problem of worry. And in the midst of of his brilliant discourse on worry, Jesus said these words. He said, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Amen. Verse 33 is a verse that many of us know and love, don't we? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What an amazing verse. But for all of our familiarity with this verse, I wonder if many of us would say that we're a bit unclear about what it actually means. For example, if if you were catching up with a friend at work on Monday, and you asked them about their weekend, and they said to you, you know, it, it was... It was a great weekend. It was great. I had lunch with a, with a friend, good time. I had a productive trip to Home Depot. But, but you know, mostly I, I just, mostly I just tried to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If that was the response of your friends, 
You know, mostly this weekend, what did I do on Saturday? Just tried to seek God's kingdom first. How, how would you respond? Or, or, or what, what would you think that they meant? Well, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? That, that's the question that I want to address today. And so, here, church, here, here church is my attempt to provide a, a definition for what it means to seek first the kingdom. Here it goes. We seek first the kingdom of God by pursuing the king and his mission with his people in his ways. So how, how do we seek the kingdom of God? We say we want to seek it first by pursuing the king and his mission with his people in his ways. And so let's break this definition down together. That's what, how we're going to spend the remainder of our time. To begin... To begin, church, we seek first the kingdom when we pursue the king, King Jesus. In his wonderful book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scribner explains that today, church in the secular West, our culture continues to prioritize and value the teachings of Jesus. We in the West, from, from atheists to strong believers, continue to take for granted that Jesus' teachings offer us the best path to human flourishing. And so, for example, today in the secular West, we continue to value equality. We, we believe in the equal status of every member of the human family, no matter their rank or their race or their religion or their gender. And we in the West value compassion. We, we believe a society should be judged by the way that it treats its weakest members. And we in the West, we value consent. We believe that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others. And we in the West, we value freedom, don't we? We believe that persons are, are not property and that each of us should be in control of our own lives. And if you're at all familiar with ancient Greek or Roman thought, you know that these values were not passed down to us from the Romans or the Greeks. Let me just give you one example. Do, do you know where the term to raise a child comes from? In ancient Roman culture, babies were presented before the head of the household. And if the father wanted the child, he would lift the baby up in his arms and hold him or her skyward, literally raising the child. And this meant that the baby was welcomed in the home. If the man didn't want the child, if he did not raise him or her, but, but instead looked away and left the baby there on the ground then this was a sign that the baby was not welcomed in the house. And tragically, sadly, the baby was, was left outside, exposed to the elements, and died. The ancient Greeks and Romans were not exactly advocates for compassion or equality or freedom for the individual. No, no, these ideals that we treasure today, which we take for granted today as the building blocks of a just society, these values were inspired by the teachings of Jesus. These values, these desires for fairness and kindness are the direct results of the Christian beliefs and worldview that dominated the Western world for centuries. However, however, today in the secular West, where, where Christianity, let's be honest, has, has long been out of vogue, most in our culture today want the kingdom without the king. We in the secular West, we want justice and equality and fair play without bothering with the relationship with Jesus. We want the fruit of the kingdom without the king of the kingdom. But to seek first the, the kingdom 
is to say, I don't want just the ideals of the kingdom or the ethics of the kingdom or the values of the kingdom without the king, without King Jesus. To seek first the kingdom is to say, Jesus, you are the greatest priority in my life. It is your voice that I most long to hear. It is your presence, Jesus, that I I most long to feel. It is your words, Jesus, that I most want to read. And it is your heart, Jesus, that I most long to know. Listen, the, the greatest gift that you could give to anyone, Jesus or otherwise, the greatest gift that you could ever give to anyone is your attention. To give your your child a a room full of gifts on their birthday and yet keep from them your attention, that's a terrible trade-off for a child, is it not? To give your spouse their dream home and yet not your attention, that is a sure way to wreck your marriage. To send a birthday card to a friend, but but not to give them your attention, your time, that, that is a sure sign that your friendship has faded. To seek first the kingdom, church, is not primarily about giving Jesus your wallet. It's not fundamentally about giving him your service or your talents or your sacrifices. No, to to seek first the kingdom is above all else to give Jesus your attention. To seek first the kingdom is to give him your time. Let let me use another tact. You, You know, friends, in almost every sphere of life, To need something or someone less is typically a sign of maturity, is it not? If my son needs me less at 22 than he does right now at 6, it will be because he's matured. If you would say that you, at this point in your life, need less money, less material possessions now than you did 20 years ago, to to feel content, to feel satisfied, to feel like you have enough, this is typically a sign that you've grown, is it not? If you would say that there's less of a need in your life to be, to be liked, less of a need to be praised, or, or less of a need to be right, these, again, are typically signs of maturation. But paradoxically, for a Christian church, a growing need for Jesus, a, a growing hunger for Jesus is actually a sign that you're maturing. A, a greater desire for his touch is a sign of growth. A greater longing to read his word or to worship him in song or to to pray to him before work. This is a sign of spiritual health. For a more intentional pursuit of of Jesus, friends, is a sign that you're seeking first the kingdom of God. And, And my prayer, church, as we move forward, is that we would be a church that we would be a church that increasingly hungers for Jesus. That we would be a church collectively that craves his presence with with ever-increasing intensity, that that we would never be a church that is just content with numerical growth or or content with polished services or or content with fine children's programming, but that we would be a people increasingly desperate for his presence, that we would be a, a, a church that just longs, just longs for the Holy Spirit to fall in our midst, that, that we would be a community of people who, who say, Jesus, we have no desire, no desire to move forward if you're not coming with us. To seek first the kingdom, we have to to first pursue the king. He has to be everything. And secondly, church, continuing on, we seek first the kingdom when we pursue the king's mission. When we pursue the king's mission. Now, church, what what is Jesus' ultimate mission? What, What is his mission? The ultimate mission of Jesus is to bring everything in this world 
under the reign and rule of God for God's great glory and for our great good. That's it. He's bringing everything under the reign and rule of God for the glory of the Lord and for our great good. The, the ultimate mission of Jesus is, is the fulfillment of Revelation eleven fifteen. When we hear the angels crying out, I love this verse, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I love that. I love that. And as followers of Jesus, we have been tasked, we have been tasked with pushing back against the kingdom of darkness within this world and, ex- and extending the reign and the rule of God. We we have been tasked, have we not, with sharing the gospel and serving the poor and healing the sick that God's rule and reign, that his kingdom might increasingly extend throughout this world. To to seek first the kingdom, then, involves not only pursuing Jesus, but, but requires a willing participation in his rescue mission. We know, don't we, church, that there is a time coming when Jesus is going to return. And by God's grace, praise the Lord, he's going to set everything right, isn't he? Heaven will come down. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And everything will be under the reign and the rule of God. But until that day comes, we have been tasked, church, have we not, with pushing back against the kingdom of darkness. With bringing everything under his reign and rule while we await for that special day. That is our charge. That's our task. Uh, On July 2nd, 1982, Larry Walters from San Pedro, California, he strapped 43 weather balloons to his lawn chair. And when the string holding the chair down to the ground was cut, he proceeded to fly high into the sky, eventually reaching an altitude of 16,000 feet, where he was spotted by passengers on two commercial planes. Can you imagine looking out your window, seeing old Larry hanging out in his lawn chair? And you imagine how scary that would be. I mean, you're 16,000 feet up in a plastic lawn chair. Walters carried, he had a perfect plan, he carried a pellet gun with him. And after shooting several of the balloons, he eventually landed near the Long Beach airport 45 minutes after taking off. And of course, he was promptly arrested, so don't... (laughs) Don't get any ideas, boys. But when asked by a reporter after the event why he performed such a risky stunt, Walters was quoted as saying this. He said this. He said, I was just tired of sitting around. I was just tired of sitting around. I was just tired, Walters was saying, of living with no sense of purpose. I was just tired of living with no direction, with no aim, with no no deeper sense of calling. Friends, we are not wired as those who have been created in the image of God to just sit around. We were not wired to live a life without purpose. In fact, we are so wired for mission, for purpose, that studies have shown that when when pets or plants are placed in a nursing home and the residents are asked to take care of them, that the residents live longer and require less medication over time. Even a small purpose, even a small act of kindness, an unexciting mission brings health and vitality into our lives. Now, now certainly all of us, all of us are given unique callings and assignments, and all of us are issued particular marching orders, but, but there is one assignment that is common to us all, all of us who 
who are followers of Jesus. And that, of course, is the call to share the good news of Jesus with others. That, 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 that is on your job description, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're a brand new believer or you've been following the Lord for 40 years. That, that's on there. A, a, a need, a, a calling to tell others about the hope that you have in Jesus. Listen, throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, when, when, whenever Rahab, you, you might remember Rahab, the woman who hid the Israelite spies in the, the book of Joshua, whenever Rahab is mentioned, she's always referred to as Rahab the prostitute. It's like her, her second name, Rahab the prostitute. Joshua 2.1 reads, and so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Joshua 6.25 says, and Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. Even the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament referred to her as the prostitute Rahab. But curiously, curiously, the one place in the Bible where Rahab is not referred to as a prostitute is at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Here she is referred to as Rahab, the mother of Boaz. So why did Matthew omit the biographical detail that all others felt inclined to add? Well, why did he refuse to refer to her as Rahab, the prostitute? Well, here's why I think this is. Because Matthew, church, many of you know, Matthew too had a past. Because Matthew too had made some decisions that he was not particularly proud of. Matthew was a, a tax collector, a man who betrayed his own people for profits when he was first called by Jesus. And Matthew had watched this man, Jesus, purposefully walk toward his death. Matthew had witnessed this Jesus allow himself to be turned into the Jewish leaders that he might be crucified and punished and that he might suffer for the sins of God's people. And Matthew had witnessed this same Jesus after his resurrection from the dead, calling his disciples to himself, calling his closest friends back into to fellowship, even after they had run away from him in, in the greatest moment of need in his life. In other words, church, Matthew had experienced the grace of God. It had changed everything for him. He, he was utterly changed by the grace of God, by seeing it play out in front of him. And because Matthew's life had been turned upside down, because Jesus had changed everything for him by dying in his place and by suffering in his stead, he knew that Rahab was no longer defined by the mistakes of her past. That Rahab need no longer be called Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the harlot or Rahab the streetwalker, but rather she was now Rahab the recipient of God's grace. And friends, as followers of Jesus... We have the amazing privilege of telling people about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have the amazing privilege of sharing with coworkers and neighbors that because Jesus died for the sins of this world, that because he received the wrath of God in our place, that they too can be given a new identity. That they too need no longer be defined by the worst decision of their life or the hardest night that they've ever had to endure or by the biggest mistake that they've ever made. That they no longer need to be defined by their divorce or their former addiction or their estrangement from their mother. We have the amazing privilege, church, of sharing with others that they can receive a new identity. That they can be counted as a son or a daughter of God. If they would but come to Jesus in repentance and receive his forgiveness. Jesus has given us, friends, a mission to pursue. We have received a mission from a king. 
And so let us weary ourselves from time to time in our service to the poor. And let us know the fatigue of praying earnestly for our neighbors. And let us occasionally know the exhaustion of staying up late into the night as a friend asks us questions about Jesus. But let us never experience, like Larry Walters, the balloon man, the restlessness, the tiredness that develops from spending too much time just sitting around. Thirdly, church, we seek first the kingdom when we join arms with the king's people. We seek first the kingdom when we join arms with the king's people. In other words, when, when we plant ourselves within the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, just as a, a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Here, Paul refers to the church as a body, as a body made up of many parts. Now, now why use this analogy? I mean, certainly... Paul had lots of analogies at his disposal, did he not? Paul could have referred to the church as a club or a team or a herd or a tribe. Well, why the body analogy? Well, here, here's why. Because a member of a club, for instance, can leave the club with very little effect for the club itself. Very little effect for the club itself. If you decided next week to, to leave your post within the Rotary Club, the Rotary club could easily continue on without you, could it not? If, if you decided next summer to sit out your men's softball league, your team could still continue to play. But you cannot remove a body part from a body without having an effect on that body. If you remove someone's eye, the body is going to suffer as a result. If you remove someone's foot, the body is going to be greatly affected. And so, friends, to seek first the kingdom of God is to say, I do not want to be a member of the body that shows up occasionally. I do not want to be a member of the body that serves on rare occasions. For I know that I'm not simply a member of a team or a member of a tribe. No, I am a member of a body. And my willingness to serve, my willingness to contribute, my willingness to give affects the body as a whole. We need to remind ourselves regularly, friends, that when we, when we sign up for children's ministry, we are bringing strength to this body. That when we connect with others at a home group, we're bringing strength to the body. When, when we come out on a Tuesday night and we pray for this church, we, we are strengthening this body. And when we come early on a Sunday morning, we look for someone new to talk to. We look for someone who, who looks like they, they don't have a friend here. We, we are strengthening this body. Friends, I believe that one of the real spiritual dangers of living in a country where following Jesus brings, I mean, no real persecution, and where there are just ample opportunities to find a church within a driving distance of our homes. Well, one of the dangers here is that subtly, over time, we begin to ask the question, what can this church do for me, as opposed to asking the more important question, what Jesus can I do for your church? We are far more prone to assess if a church is meeting our needs than to assess if we're contributing to the needs of our church. But a follower of Jesus who is seeking first the kingdom of God is not someone who continually asks, is this church my ideal body? 
Rather, a person seeking the kingdom of God is someone who regularly asks, am I an ideal body part? Am I a kidney that any church, that, that any body would love to have? Am I a foot or a liver or an ear that is functioning at a high level? Am I contributing to the body in which I've been placed? Or is my cynicism or is my inconsistency or my lack of involvement creating a greater stress on the body at large? Paul's metaphor here in 1 Corinthians 12 is is also helpful for us, church, because it reminds us that, that just like our involvement as members affects the body as a whole, our removal from the body affects us as individuals. Paul didn't use the term tribe or band when referring to us as believers because you can leave a band without without many consequences. I quit the marching band in ninth grade with with no ill effects, as as far as I'm (laughs) aware, as far as I'm aware of. But when a body part is disconnected from the body, when when a heart is removed from the body, when when a liver or an eye is removed, if great pains are, are not taken to connect that body part to another existing body in a short time, that body part is going to die. Livers, it turns out, they they don't do so well when they're on the table for very long. And of course, the same is true for us when we're disconnected from a church. For it is possible to get in shape without joining a gym, and it's possible to to gain knowledge without ever applying for a library card, and it's possible to follow the Buckeyes without ever going to an actual game. But friends, it is impossible to grow as a follower of Jesus without being connected to a group of believers. For to disconnect from a a local church or to to remain on the very edge, the the, the very margins of a church community where you would say, in effect, you you know, I go here, but but in all honesty, your your commitment, your your consistency is is very weak. To be disconnected from other believers is, is essentially to say, my relationship with Jesus can survive despite a lack of accountability. A lack of opportunity to confess my sin to another believer. And my relationship with Jesus can survive on very few prayers from others. My relationship with Jesus can survive and thrive despite not hearing God's word preached in person, despite not having opportunities to serve with other believers, and despite not having the opportunity to experience corporate worship. I can survive as a kidney or a liver, we are saying, while laying flat on a table. Josh Howerton, he says this, and I love this quote. He said, it's easy to think that you're one decision, one habit, one sermon, one miracle away from the life that God wants for you. But the truth is, you are one community away from the life that God desires for you. How often do we think, friends, that I'm just one amazing sermon away from stepping into a changed life? I'm just one Holy Spirit experience away. If I I could just be overwhelmed by the Spirit, everything's going to change. I'm just one answered prayer. I'm just one miracle away from stepping into the the passionate life or or the Jesus-centered life that I long for. But friends, if you talk to the majority of mature followers of Jesus in this room, you will find that it was not a sermon or a book or a class that that fundamentally shaped their walk with the Lord. It was a community. It was a community. It was a community of passionate followers of Jesus who embraced them, who welcomed them in, who strengthened their faith and shifted their paradigms. And so, friend, if you are newer to our community, or if you would say that you have been 
camping out on the fringes of our community. My, my prayer is that now would be the time that you would fully invest here as a member of our church, that, that, that perhaps now would be the time when you would attend Vineyard 101 next week and, and, and even consider joining our church as a member. You might learn more about our church. That, that now would be the time where you would head out into the lobby after the service and, and check out our, our home group wall and, and find a home group that you can visit. That, that now would be the time, friend, when you would seek first the kingdom of God by walking with the king's people. Lastly, church, We'll end here. We seek first the kingdom when we follow the king's ways. In other words, when we live in obedience to his commands. You know, in our culture today, the widely held belief is that you cannot say that, that anything I do is wrong if it doesn't affect anyone else. That, that's the, the, the unspoken or sometimes spoken belief. And so, of course, of course, of course, we, we can say that genocide is wrong, that the abuse of children in all forms is wrong, that, that racism is objectively wrong. For, for those effect, actions, they, they, of course, they affect other people. But the widely held belief, again, in our culture is that if our actions seem to have no direct consequences on another, if our actions do not hurt anyone else, well, then we should be free to pursue our own desires. What rights, we often think, does anyone else have to, to tell me how to live my life if my actions are causing no harm to another? What right does that, anyone else have to tell me how to express myself sexually? What right does anyone else have to tell me how I should spend my money? What right does anyone else have to tell me that, that I shouldn't indulge in excessive amounts of alcohol or pills or my drug of choice? And so let me use an illustration to help explain why I don't think this line of, of thinking is very helpful for us. Suppose, friend, that you awake one morning and you take a look at the condo walls around you and you decide, I, I don't like this at all, and so I, I want to repaint all of these walls. I want to paint them all. You, you could reason with yourself and say, of course I can and should paint the walls, because painting the walls within this condo affects none of the other condos in the building, right? I mean, that's true. The people living above you, the people living below you, they're not going to be affected if you paint the walls inside the condo. Can't be the wrong thing to do because no one else would be affected. But, but friends, there is a more fundamental question, more important question to ask than if your new walls would, would affect the other condos in the building. The, mo the most fundamental question to ask is this. Does this condo belong to you, or is there another owner? Is your name, friend, on the deed, or are you staying at an Airbnb? Because, friend, you might have an amazing vision for how the condo would look if, if the walls were painted in Bermuda turquoise or goldfinch yellow. But if you're staying in an Airbnb, if the condo doesn't belong to you, then you are not being repressed if you are advised not to paint the walls. It is not a rejection of your personhood to tell you that this isn't your decision to make. For the decision rightly belongs to the owner of the property. If I move into an apartment, I'm going to treat the apartment differently than if it was a condo. It matters if it belongs to you. And friends, as human beings, our bodies, our very lives belong to God by virtue of the fact that he created us. By virtue of the fact that he is our maker and we are his creation. 
And for followers of Jesus, this reality that we are not our own, that we belong to another, is even more true of us. For our God has not only created us, but he has redeemed us. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You were not just created by God, Paul is saying, but your soul was purchased by God when he sent his son to die in your place, freeing you from spiritual death. You might be the tenant within your body, friend, but God is your landlord. Your body belongs to him. And so if we want to seek first the kingdom, we must not make decisions, friends, based solely on how it affects other people. We must make decisions based on the commands and the preferences and the prompts of the one who owns our very life. Abraham Kuyper famously said this. We'll, we'll close with this last thought. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Our King Jesus recognizes that there isn't a single square inch in all of creation from the deepest ocean trench to the farthest galaxy that does not rightfully belong to him. He is king. He is Lord over all. And friends, we need to understand that there is not a, a square inch of our very lives over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There, there is not an area or a facet of our lives that he is content to remain unsubmitted to him. Jesus looks at our money and he says, mine. He looks at our family and he says, mine. He looks at our giftings and he says, mine. He looks at our time and our jobs and our bodies and our timelines and he says, mine. Friends, how do we seek first the kingdom of God? By acknowledging that, that Jesus is not meant to be our consultant or our advisor or our confidant or our sounding board but that he is meant to be our king and our Lord. Amen? Amen. 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 Why don't we stand?